Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. I don't normally say this, but I feel like I wrote a pretty good show for you guys today, so let's get into it. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank allegedly closed the bank of a religious freedom nonprofit and demanded a list of its donors as a condition to have the account reinstated. The bank account of the National Committee for Religious Freedom, which is a nonpartisan, multi-faith nonprofit founded by former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, Sam Brownback, was recently closed without explanation. Brownback said, we went into a Chase branch in the District of Columbia to open account, no problem. Then several weeks later, I went to put another deposit into the account and they said, your account has been canceled. We'll be sending your money back to you. Brownback served Kansas as its governor and senator before becoming the International Religious Freedom Ambassador in the Trump administration. He said that when NCRF's executive director asked about why the account had been closed, the executive director was stonewalled. The people said the decision was made at the corporate level, it's secret, we're not going to tell you why, and it's irrevocable. We were just stunned, he said. Um, He also penned an op-ed for the Washington Examiner last week detailing the situation. I have not been able to find that yet, but um, I I will try and put it in the description. In his op-ed, Brownback alleged that a Chase employee reached out to the nonprofit and said that Chase would reconsider doing business with them if they would provide a donor list, a list of political candidates it intended to support, and a full explanation of the criteria by which it would endorse them. When reached for comment, a spokesperson for Chase told Fox Business, of course, I'm not able to speak about confidential client matters, but what I can say is we have never and would never exit a client relationship due to their political or religious affiliation. Brownback provided Fox with the September 27th letter that he sent to Chase. It is in this, like in the, in the article, um, where he was demanding answers for the account closure. Brownback noted that he has yet to hear back from the billionaire businessman, uh, Jamie Dimon, who recently testified before Congress about the importance of religious freedom. We're not concerned We are concerned that religious institutions, houses of worship, and people of all faiths are at risk of having their business, credit, or even personal or private bank accounts terminated for any or no reason at all. The Canadian trucker fiasco should have been a wake-up call for everyone. The only way around this is to create competition. Companies that don't discriminate will flourish if they take the opportunity to capitalize. Rumble and Odyssey versus YouTube, Give, Send, Go versus GoFundMe. The people who have the ability to punish them legally will not because they're friends. They're in one another's pockets. Punish them all where it hurts, in their wallets. 
starve them, financially bankrupt them, force them to change or go out of business, stop using their services, close your Chase account, stop watching YouTube videos, don't just talk about it, do it, and you will affect change. A senior executive from pharmaceutical giant Pfizer has admitted under oath that the company never tested the COVID-19 vaccine to see if it would prevent transmission of the virus. In a bombshell admission during a European parliamentary COVID hearing, Pfizer's Janine Small testified that neither she nor other officials within the company knew whether its vaccine would even stop transmission of COVID before entering the market last year. The confession from Small, president of International Developed Markets, emerged during questioning from a member of the European Parliament, uh, Rob Ruse. Ruse asked Small during a session, was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? Did we know about stopping immunization before it entered the market? No, Small said in a response while seemingly laughing at the notion. You know, we had to really move at the speed of science to know what's taking place in the market. What the fuck does that even mean? We had to do everything at risk, she added. Ruse of the Netherlands was outraged by the revelation and argues that it exposes the justific- that the justification for the COVID vaccine passports was all a scam. A number of officials in the United States and around the world have claimed that vaccines could prevent COVID-19 transmission. Among them, Democratic President Joe Biden. In July of 2021, Biden remarked that, quote, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. In May of 21, Biden's chief medical advisor, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease Director, Dr. Anthony Fauci said in a CBS interview that people cannot transmit the virus after the shots. He declared that vaccinated people are dead ends for COVID-19. When you get vaccinated, you not only protect your own health and that of the family, but you also contribute to the community health by preventing the spread of the virus throughout the community, Fauci said. Two months later, in late July of that year, after most of the population had already received their first shots, Fauci said that vaccinated people are capable of transmitting the virus. In the coming months, Fauci, Biden, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, and others pivoted to say the vaccine prevents severe disease, hospitalization, and death from COVID-19. Many people felt pressured into getting the vaccinations because they believed that they could protect others by preventing transmission, even if they were at greater risk of personal harm from the shots themselves than the virus. Imagine knowing that our government funded the lab this virus was released from, watching your family members die on Skype calls, watching children have speech delays and emotional issues, and then getting jabbed four and five times, believing it was for the greater good, 
only to find out that it was all a lie and fabricated to pad the bank accounts of big pharma, politicians, Anthony Fauci, and still thinking the government is here to help you. Could not be me. So I told you guys yesterday that Biden released his national security strategy, and while climate is listed 63 times in our national security strategy, I think it's important to hearken back to an earlier occurrence this week, Monday show, in case you missed it, where Joe Biden changed signals intelligence activity, as I share this particular section with you. We face an increase in significant threat within the United States from a range of domestic violent extremists, including those motivated by racial or ethnic prejudice, as well as anti-government or anti-authority sentiment. Continuing to implement our first-ever national strategy for countering domestic terrorism will enable us to better understand and share information regarding the domestic terrorist threat, prevent recruitment and mobilization to violence and disrupt and deter domestic activity, domestic terrorist activity, and any transnational linkages, all while reinforcing respect for civil rights and civil liberties. Already, we are providing more and better information on domestic violent extremists, threats to state, local, territorial, and tribal partners, and using new mechanisms, such as smartphone-based applications, to do so in real time. We're investing millions of dollars in data-driven violence prevention efforts, including through grant programs available to federal, state, territorial, tribal, and nonprofit partners, as well as to houses of worship as they face increased threats. We're working with like-minded governments, civil society, and the technology sector to address terrorist and violent extremist content online. Violent extremist content online. They're going to take your memes, folks, including through innovative research collaborations. And we are confronting the long-term contributors to domestic violent extremist threats, including working with Congress to advance common sense gun laws and policies and addressing the crisis of disinformation and misinformation often channeled through social and other media platforms that can fuel extreme polarization and lead some individuals to violence. Anti-government and anti-authority sentiment is domestic violent extremism. I know I've talked about this ad nauseum because they keep shoving this language down our throats since August of last year. I'm going to keep talking about it at the top of my lungs every day because it's fascist, disgusting bullshit to stifle dissent, and that language and behavior belongs in totalitarian countries, not the free world. I love the line where he says, as well as to houses of worship as they face increased threats. Yesterday, Kameni said that the Hail Commander song, which is a song that's dedicated to him and sang by loyal followers and soldiers of his, that was sung in the Houston, Texas Islamic Education Center was a success for him and his regime. A tyrannical mass murderer who screams death to America as often as he can is praising the reverence to him from a place of worship that has been turned into a recruitment and indoctrination center for a terrorist regime. 
But yes, those moms at school board meetings, those people pissed that you threatened them via medical blackmail with forced vaccinations, those individuals whose 401ks you and the Federal Reserve has decimated, the poor people that you constantly evoke for talking points that cannot put food on their table right now, their disdain for this government and the kleptocracy that it's become is the problem. Imagine, for a moment, running for president and making all your grandiose promises that you'll never fulfill, including the implication that if elected, you're going to turn the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia into a pariah. Then imagine, two years after you're elected, you have to crawl on your knees to that same prince and ask him to produce more oil, pretty please, because you've just really fucked up on every level possible and you you really need him to bail you out. Next, he lets you know that not only is he not going to bail you out, but he's going to fuck you over even more and you have the audacity to say, well, can you wait until after our election so that doesn't negatively impact my candidates so that we can stay in power, pretty please, Daddy Prince? Well, that's pretty much exactly what happened with Joe Biden. The Biden administration asked Saudi Arabia, the de facto leader of oil producer OPEC, to delay its decision on an oil output by a month, the kingdom said in a statement. The Saudis declined, and in early October, decided to announce its largest supply cut since 2020 to the tune of 2 million barrels per day starting in November. That means tighter supplies, higher prices at a time of already high inflation, and worries of a global recession. Worries. We are in a global recession. You guys are insane sometimes with this language. Which angered U.S. lawmakers who are now calling for a reevaluation of relations with the Saudi kingdom. Notably, the White House's request would have delayed the decision until after the U.S. midterm elections. In a statement dated Wednesday, the Saudi government defended its move and said all OPEC decisions are based on economic forecasts and needs. The government of the kingdom clarified through its continuous consultation with the U.S. administration that all economic analysis indicate that postponing the OPEC decision for a month, according to what had been suggested, would have had negative economic consequences, the statement read. Responding to the Saudi claims, this is what's great about this, Pentagon spokesman John Kirby reframed the exchange that accused the kingdom of aiding Russia's revenues and hampering the impact of Western sanctions on Moscow for its war in Ukraine. In recent weeks, the Saudis conveyed to us, privately and publicly, their intention to reduce oil production, which they knew would increase Russian revenues and blunt the effectiveness of sanctions. That is the wrong direction, Kirby said. We presented Saudi Arabia with analysis to show that there was no market basis to cut production targets and that they could easily wait for the next OPEC meeting to see how things developed. U.S. lawmakers have urged the cutting of military sales to Saudi Arabia, America's top weapons buyer, and are encouraging the passing of antitrust legislation that would go after OPEC. 
Riyadh rejected the accusations of making any politically motivated moves. The government of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia would first like to express its total rejection of these statements that are not based in fact, and which are based on portraying the OPEC decision out of its purely economic context. This decision was taken unanimously by all member states of the OPEC group. The kingdom affirms that the outcomes of the OPEC meetings are adopted through consensus among member states and that they're not based on the unilateral decision by a single country. These outcomes are based purely on economic considerations that take into account maintaining balance of supply and demand in the oil markets. Still, the Saudi government stressed the continued importance of its relationship with the United States and said the kingdom affirms that it views its relationships with the United States of America as a strategic one that serves the common interest of both countries. The kingdom also stresses the importance of building on the solid pillars upon which the Saudi-U.S. relationship had stood over the past eight decades. These pillars include mutual respect, enhancing common interests, actively contributing to preserve regional and international peace and security, countering terrorism and extremism, and achieving prosperity for the peoples of the region. Now, I'm old enough to remember when a president called Zelensky and asked him to please look into the corruption that took place between a certain family and Burisma, and he was impeached for it. But I guess we don't care about influencing elections anymore through diplomatic conversations with foreign powers, right? Just a quick note on this. Elon Musk is now under federal investigation regarding his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. While the filing said he was under investigation, it did not say what the focus was or which federal authorities were investigating. I'd bet a pound of jelly beans that it starts with an S and ends with a C, or an F and ends with a C. Alex Spiro, an attorney for Musk, told Reuters that Twitter's court filing was a misdirection. It is Twitter's executives that are under investigation federally. Twitter declined to comment, of course. That is everything yesterday, this morning, on a Friday. Tonight we have Liberty Happy Hour, and as you can see, we have a ton to discuss I am looking forward, considering we did not have one last week. You can join us on Twitter Spaces at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I look forward to seeing you guys. You guys take care and have a great Friday and a great weekend. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.